Chapter Twenty Eight of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume Two, by Moncure Conway, Chapter Twenty Eight, Part One. Discussions in London Concerning Slavery and the Negro My Testimonies Concerning Slavery A Disclosure About the Confederacy Commemoration of John Brown Thackeray George Cruikshank Charles Dickens My Journalistic Work The Shakespeare Tercentenary at Stratford-on-Avon Howard Staunton Mrs. Shakespeare's Second Marriage Illness and Death of Our Child, Emerson Excursions on the Continent A Visit to Dr. Strauss Chervenus A Week at Ostend Residence at Notting Hill Professor Carnes J. S. Mill Helen Taylor The Paradoxical Ideas of Carlyle on Slavery impressive by reason of his absolute veracity and remoteness from the partisan arena were quoted by men not free from partisanship one sunday evening i was taken by tom hughes to a room where the elder macmillan received his friends conversation began on the american situation and some participants spoke to me sharply thereupon hughes broke out on my assailant with a severity from which the company could not recover herbert spencer said to me in a low voice a good many intelligent people do not hold the same views of the negro and his position as those of the abolitionists i was invited to join the newly formed anthropological society and did so but found that it was led by a few ingenious gentlemen whose chief interest was to foster contempt of the negro one of these dr james hunt published a pamphlet entitled the negro's place in nature huxley pointed out to me privately the fallacies of hunt and i made speeches in the anthropological society but it became plain to me that anti-slavery sentiment in england was by no means so deep as i had supposed i felt certain that I could name half a dozen great English writers, read and honored throughout America, who by a public declaration could have shamed our government out of its pretexts for not dealing genuinely with its only real enemy, slavery. With the hope of effecting something in this direction, I wrote the book printed at the end of 1863, Testimonies Concerning Slavery. From this work, never published in America, and long out of print i quote a paragraph of the introduction i have long believed that the friends of liberty can help america much more by rekindling their old watchfires which sadly need fuel than by advocating this or that measure or man that may be for the time associated with the struggle what america needs now is not a sultry indulgence but a bracing criticism always supposing that criticism to be made in the interest of liberty and not of slavery it is related that at the federal repulse at charleston a negro who bore the flag crawled a long distance amid a storm of shot and shell dragging his wounded body 
but still holding up the flag. When he regained his companions, his only words were, I did not let it, the flag, touch the ground once. Let the voices of all true men keep it ever before the rulers of America, that her banner is far nobler, so long as a negro holds it up with devotion, as too pure to touch the ground, than if it should wave over every fort and city of the South, tainted with compromise or soiled with slavery. I had privately told this story of the negro and the flag to Browning, and he told me he had repeated it in several companies. I afterwards regretted having printed it, for Browning would probably have made it into a lyric. John Bright was pleased with my testimonies, and did much to promote its circulation. Indeed, all of my personal friends were satisfied with it. It was the best I could do at such a distance from America, and under circumstances that rendered it impossible to correspond with my friends in Virginia. But I do not now read the book with satisfaction. It contains a chapter on the Negro, which I sometimes think of reprinting. But so far as the war is concerned, the book by no means represents the conclusions reached by studying facts afterwards revealed. While writing my testimonies, I received the following. Sir, I have not the honor of your acquaintance, and therefore my signature would be of no value. The substance of this note, however, may be important to you. A short time since the representative of the southern states in Europe submitted to the governments of France and England propositions for the practical abolition of slavery, on condition of recognition and material assistance, viz., that the children of slaves born after a given period should be free. This, which is the only possible way of abolition, may now be withdrawn, but the information may be useful to you, and I therefore enclose it. Yours truly, Libertas. I paid little attention to this anonymous note, but it was recently recalled to me by a manuscript in possession of the Du Bellay family, Paris. Mr. Du Bellay, whose widow, named Moncure, is my relative, was a native of New Orleans and a barrister. He happened to be in France in 1861, and though holding no commission from the Confederacy, devoted himself to its interests in Europe, his command of French enabling him to assist the Confederate agents. Mr. Du Bellay left a narrative of negotiations in Paris at that time, shown me by his family. Of Mr. Du Bellay I never heard until thirty years after the war, but he records that he urged upon Slidell in Paris, and on other foreign agents of the Confederacy, the necessity of immediate emancipation. He also wrote to the Confederate government in Richmond, declaring that as the war would certainly end slavery, even were the South victorious, they should at once utilize emancipation. On December 2, 1863, a public meeting convened by the Emancipation Society was held in the Whittington Club Hall to commemorate the fourth anniversary of the execution of John Brown. The chair was taken by William Mallison, who, in his opening speech, related the mythical story that on his way to the scaffold, Brown stopped and gave a kiss to a little Negro girl. The meeting had been convened to listen to an address from myself, and this was published by the Society. In it I said, Brown's plan was the best his eye could scan. 
but it would only have done in virginia what he had already done in kansas free a few slaves but god's plan was a different one from that it included the placing of the angel justice side by side with the fiend oppression that the world should see them ere the foot of the one was planted on the neck of the other i am now certain that no god had anything to do with the affair except the phantasmal god of war worshipped by brown and that the biblical captain who revived that deified wrath inflicted on america's sequels of slavery worse than the disease bayard taylor told me that he once visited the studio of baron marochetti with thackeray who pointed to a sculpture of st george and the dragon and said every man has his dragon mine is dining out what's yours the same replied taylor carlyle who had known thackeray from his youth told me that at times he thackeray having some urgent work on hand escaped from invitations callers and letters and went off from his house without leaving any address one night a messenger came to him carlyle from a public-house near by with a request from thackeray for the loan of a bible i sometimes saw thackeray his hair was so white that i supposed him old until it was announced at his death that he was only fifty-two the death of thackeray december twenty fourth eighteen sixty three caused universal distress the day of his burial at kensal green cemetery december thirtieth was beautiful and a large throng surrounded his grave starting out on foot for the cemetery i overtook george cruikshank whom i well knew and we walked together he was much shocked at the death of his friend for there had been no premonitions thackeray had cheerfully bid his family good night in the early morning his servant entered his room and placed beside him the usual cup of coffee entering later he noticed the coffee untouched thackeray died of an effusion on a brain that weighed fifty-eight and one-fourth ounces the average weight of the masculine brain being less than four pounds george cruikshank received my compliments for his vigor at seventy-two with his usual discourse on the advantages of teetotalism he was a small thick-set man with a pale face so singular that it might have been strikingly homely if it had not been intellectual and benevolent i am getting to know this road well very well he said many a fine fellow has been buried at kensal green but never a finer or a truer than make peace thackeray how little did they know the man who thought him a hard cold and cutting blade he was much more like a sensitive loving little girl i never was more impressed than at this moment with cruikshank's genius for seeing his phrase interpreted certain lines under thackeray's eyes lines of wondrous tenderness as if their light were flowing out to all in whom he looked here is one picture i have in my mind of him said cruikshank he was coming from ireland across the channel with his wife and children one an infant there was a fearful storm all night and the channel horribly rough and mrs thackeray was seized with a brain fever and through all that terrible night from shore to shore sat thackeray motionless bearing the infant in one arm sustaining the wife with the other utterly unconscious of the prevailing terror for there was danger his poor wife never recovered from brain fever 
and was worse than lost to him forever. Cruikshank had been Thackeray's teacher when the author aspired to be an artist, but, he said, he had not the patience to be an artist with pencil or brush. I used to tell him that to be an artist was to burrow along like a mole, heaving up a little mound here and there for a long distance. He said he thought he would presently break out into another element and stay there. Cruikshank spoke of his venture in 1841, The Omnibus, of which Lehman Blanchard was editor and Thackeray the chief contributor. It would be more pleasing to think of Thackeray as resting by the side of Douglas Gerald, but Gerald was not buried at Kensal Green. I remember well the day when we were standing beside the grave of the poor suicide Lehman Blanchard at Clapham Way, and Gerald said he wished to be buried at a spot hard by, which he pointed out, and there he was buried. Poor Blanchard. Cruikshank did not go on with his memory of Lehman Blanchard, who, unable to recover from the shock of his wife's death, killed himself two months after it, February 15, 1845 for at this time the hearse passed us, and my companion's lip quivered and his eye grew moist. John Leach came up. The two artists looked into one another's eyes and shook hands, but no word passed. Nearly every literary man in London was present. I particularly remarked the emotion of Charles Dickens. After the funeral I walked away with Robert Browning, and we were presently joined by Dickens, to whom the poet introduced me. Dickens warmly admired Browning, and I was told he once said to a friend that he would rather have written Colombe's birthday than any of his novels. As my road lay in another direction, I mounted an omnibus and sat beside the driver, who inquired if Charles Dickens had been at the funeral, adding, I would just like to see that man. When I told him Dickens had passed on ahead, he lashed his horses, but Dickens had disappeared, and Browning was with Tom Taylor, but the driver was partly consoled by seeing the author of his favorite play, The Ticket of Leave Man. Dickens was a wonder. The more I saw of London, the more I loved and honored the London Dante who had invested it with romance and peopled its streets and alleys with spirits, so that the huge city could never more be seen without his types and shadows. He had his limitations, no doubt, had he been born in France, where genius is free to deal with every side of human life, Dickens might have been greater. To me he remained the chief marvel of his time. I felt some satisfaction in telling him that Oliver Twist, Little Nell, and other children of his had been far back in the forties our beloved friends in a Virginian village of which he had never heard, that I had myself lost my position as a model schoolboy and been flogged for jumping out of the school window and playing truant in order to see him alight from the stagecoach in fredericksburg and that his description of the fearful roads by which he journeyed thither hastened the building of a railway of dickens readings no description can convey any adequate impression he was in himself a whole stock company he seemed to be physically transformed as he passed from one character to another. He had as many distinct voices as his books had characters. He held at command the fountains of laughter and tears. Dickens' voice, in its every disguise, 
was of such quality that it reached all of those thousands in st james hall and he stood before us as a magician when he sat down it was not more applause that followed but a passionate outburst of love for the man dickens was a unique man he had graduated from grub street to the palace and his writings insinuated themselves equally into the hearts of rich and poor learned and literate the year eighteen sixty four had opened happily for wife and myself the mason incident had cleared away and letters came from america full of the old friendship my testimonies concerning slavery was circulating largely and also my article on benjamin banneker the negro astronomer reprinted from the atlantic monthly by the ladies emancipation society my congregation was rapidly growing our means increasing we found our best amusement in strolling along the quaint shops and through the zoological gardens with our two children my journalistic work was not under orders but selected by myself my duties were thus always congenial and at times delightful for one week in the april of eighteen sixty four i moved in an enchanted land it was at stratford-on-avon during the celebration of the tercentenary of shakespeare that poet with all his miracles hardly imagined more beautiful masks than those amid which we moved during those fair days a grand pavilion for theatrical performances had been raised vast tents for concerts and a gallery containing all the great shakespearean subjects ever painted with the thirty famous portraits of the poet all these were open for the throng of pilgrims from every part of europe who day by day nay hour by hour were charmed away from the hard contemporary world of ferdinand and miranda by the pageants of prospero now we were listening to the songs of shakespeare set to music of the early english composers then to mendelssohn's sommer nochstrom one night we laughed at buckstone's andrew agucheek on another saw beautiful stella colis shine on juliet's balcony like a star and every night some exquisite play the grand old mayor flower at the hill his son charles at avonbank near the church and his son edgar in the village kept open house there were daily banquets pretty barges laden with pretty ladies floated among the swans on the avon excursions were made to anne hathaway's cottage and to charlecote hill scene of the legendary deer stocking incident there was a grand dinner with a shakespeare text for every dish and wine and toast there were five discourses about shakespeare in the old church by bishops trench and wordsworth and finally there was as magnificent a fancy dress ball as was ever known everyone being in a shakespearean character the gentry from all warwickshire and from other counties and many from london france germany were present and the dance went on till dawn during all this festival i sat in the ancient red lion inn for a large part of each night save when on duty as malvolio at the ball surrounded by the relics of washington irving writing my description of the wondrous affair for harper's monthly a daily letter was due to the morning star in london one or two to the commonwealth in boston but i found writing a joy and grudged every moment that sleep claimed for my real dreamland i made during the fete 
the acquaintance of howard staunton the acute editor of shakespeare and almost the only unbiased critical investigator into the personal life of the poet staunton was then about fifty with a ruddy english color and clear-cut features his step was elastic his movement quick and being myself a good walker we enjoyed rambles together i told him how much i had valued his standard work on chess but he had long given up the game it not only took up too much time he said but i found that it demoralized players men have hated me and said mean things about me merely because i beat them at chess staunton had long before reached the conclusion i had just come to that shakespeare's widow had married richard james but i warned him that if he touched the romantic sentiment investing anne hathaway he might suffer as much as if he had beaten the accepted writers at chess we examined the register of burials in the church and felt certain that the carefully bracketed names were those of one and the same person august eight mrs shakespeare anne uxor ricardi james the register it is said is not the original one but this only makes it more certain that the copy is exact for at a later time no one would have ventured to bracket the wife of shakespeare with another anne and certainly no clergyman or clerk would have omitted to add uxor guglielmi shakespeare to his widow's name while being so particular about the wife of one richard james staunton had made a search in the old town records after the james family and found that it was a well-known name but belonged to people of much lower position than the shakespeare's he had found one item which suggested to him that the richard james whom shakespeare's widow married was a stratford shoemaker and a pious ranter staunton invited me to visit him at his house in london where he would show me the notes he had made on the matter but i was prevented from doing so and he died not long after but knowing well the exactness of staunton i have adhered to his theory of which indeed i find some confirmation in shakespeare's dislike of puritanism and still more in the epitaph of his daughter mrs hall no such words would have been inscribed on her grave had she not been among pharisaic people witty above her sex but that's not all wise to salvation was good mistress hall something of shakespeare was in that but this wholly of him with whom she's now in bliss end of chapter eight part one